Hello, friends and adventurers. It's Rob, the D&D wannabe, coming in before the show to share some great news. New news! Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. Okay, on with the show. Imagine, if you will, that you are in a room. That room has three walls that define your existence, like three dimensions of your reality. But there is a fourth wall, a wall that separates us from things beyond our understanding. It protects us from potentially harmful realizations, such as might cause us to question the limits of possibility, the sanctity of our thoughts, and free will. Consider one Louis Ren Jones, a successful halfling big game hunter, mayor of a town on the jungle frontier, friend to adventurers, and an accomplished hero. Picture him with his keen eyes, bushy eyebrows, jauntily cocked hat, and polished boots. Quite the dapper chap. But what if we told you that Jones wasn't a real person, but instead a combination of words and numbers that would fit onto a single sheet of paper, and that these were assembled for the entertainment of creatures that lived beyond the wall? Would that change how you perceived him? And what if Jones himself came to this realization? and discovered that every decision he'd ever made or ever would make was truly being determined by the whims of an inebriated restaurateur, that his entire existence was a game for a creature outside his reality. How would that affect him? Now imagine, if you will, that not merely Jones, but the entire world within those walls was a figment of imagination shared amongst the man behind the wall and his friends. The man that puppets Jones often makes an effort to keep Jones's actions in character, in line with what he's determined are Jones's motivations and interests. Consider now what would happen if this puppeteer were to put aside any consideration of Jones's sanctity and well-being, ignoring the accepted limitations that keep his existence reasonable. He might thrust Jones into situations that he has no business being in provide him with information he had no knowledge of, or put him in mortal danger for his own purposes. What would happen if the man began to chip away at the fourth wall? Would this departure from Jones's predetermined realism in any way benefit the man behind the wall, or improve this macabre dance he calls a game? To answer that, we ourselves must sink into the murky quagmire of pros and cons that is the metagame.
welcome back, friends and adventurers, to another episode of Bardic Twinspiration. It's me, Steven, back again after my one-week hiatus. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode where we got to hear from the Godfather. Finally, a guest episode where I get a week off. We have been really looking forward to him having a chance to sit down with Rob and have that conversation. We've been talking about it for months, and it was a delight to sit back and join the rest of you listeners as an audience member for a change. But the show must go on, so here I am, joined once again, as always, by Rob. Yes, here I am also as well in in the place that I was last time. Well, adventurers, we've talked about it here and there as the episodes have gone by more and more recently in the last few episodes that I've been on, and it's time to finally tackle the issue of metagaming. <gasps> but Steve, that's terrible. Metagaming is terrible. It is the ultimate sin at the tabletop role-playing game tabletop is talking and thinking and doing things that your character doesn't know. That's the bad. That's the bad thing. Yeah, I kind of agree. Metagaming is one of my biggest pet peeves around any sort of RPG table. If there is any egregious instance of metagaming that goes unaddressed and that actively betrays the integrity of another character's decision or the verisimilitude of the Dungeon Master's world, that's probably the last session for me. In fact, it has led me to often wonder, wouldn't this game just be so much better if there was absolutely no metagaming? But Steve, what if I told you that metagaming actually makes the Dungeons & Dragons tabletop role-playing game world go round, and that you need it at your table, or you're going to have a bad time. Well, I would be shocked and appalled and confused if I didn't also write this script. <laughs> actually, Rob and I are also kind of fans of metagaming. In fact... S some. Some metagaming. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, don't turn this off yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't don't touch that dial. Don't turn us off. Don't worry. We're going to explain all of this. But there are actually types of metagaming that occur around the table regularly, even in the best groups with the best players and the best DMs. In fact, Rob and I here at Bardic Twinspiration strongly encourage all of you to metagame in certain ways just a bit. So quick, before they turn us off. <laughs> in In case... You are unfamiliar with the term. You're probably familiar with the concept. Metagaming is taking knowledge that your character does not possess, but that you as the player in real life do, and using that knowledge to inform the decisions that you make for your character in the fiction of the game. Does that need to be simplified more? Or did that make sense? No, that works for me. Metagaming is basically you as a player removing yourself from the fiction and breaking immersion to gain some sort of benefit, either at the table or above it. I think I actually took your simple explanation and made it a little bit more complicated. That is kind of the idea behind metagaming, though, is that I'm going to get some kind of advantage, either for the party or more commonly just for myself, because I am a smart player. I am intelligently using every resource at my disposal to play this game, even if I shouldn't have that knowledge. And you know, at first blush, hearing you say that sounds like a bad thing. It does, and oftentimes it is, but not every instance of this is bad. Uh, as I said, there are types of metagaming 
that pretty much are required to play the game and to play it well and for everyone at the table to get along. Right. I admit that I, too, have been a victim of this unfortunate stigma regarding metagaming that portrays it as a purely negative occurrence. But let's face it, by that definition, it just takes place naturally all the time. It's nowhere more prevalent than in the case of the Dungeon Master, who uses this above-the-table, outside-the-fiction knowledge to create a compelling narrative and to properly challenge the PCs at his table. Right. The Dungeon Master should know everything about the characters and the characters' backstories, even if no particular NPC in the world technically does. But if you want to present the players and their characters with situations that will encourage growth and that will challenge them both from a mechanical standpoint and from a roleplay standpoint and push their boundaries a little bit as people and as characters, then you want to present them with NPCs, with situations, with monsters that will do that. And you are technically using information from outside the game to inform decisions at the table. And while the majority of this episode is going to be about players metagaming, either for good or ill, I do just want to recognize that a dungeon master must metagame in order to run a game properly, but that, like the players that we're going to be discussing later on, a dungeon master can abuse this privilege to directly counteract the designs and machinations of the players and I hope that that does not occur at your tables. We're not going to be talking a lot about that because based on the feedback that we've received from our community and from online, we find that to be somewhat less of a prevalent problem, but we do recognize that it is one that exists. Players are not the only ones who can be guilty of metagaming to someone else's detriment. Sure. I mean, there's two sides to every coin, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later. But let's say that we have a cleric in the party of your adventurers. I, as the dungeon master, may want to give them a particular moment to shine in the upcoming adventure, so I'm going to make sure that we have an encounter with Undead, where clerics get to use their channel divinity to really feel like a powerful force. If you've watched the Briarwood arc of Critical Role in Campaign 1, you know what a cleric can do to an Undead horde. Mm -hmm. I could also use it to say, I want to challenge a particular player Someone's been riding particularly high and is doing a bunch of damage, and I want to have them get a little more creative. Perhaps I include a flying enemy, maybe just one of many, in the next encounter, so the barbarian has to think outside the box a little bit, or cooperate with other members of the team to be able to achieve their goals. Let the wizard cast fly on them, for example. On the other hand, the dungeon master can use out-of-character information to specifically thwart the plans of the players. For example, if I'm running a dungeon and the players find a clever way to come at it from an angle that I wasn't expecting, I could seal an entrance or have the villain of the dungeon happen to be strolling past there at that particular moment to discourage and thwart and just give them a bad time. And that's not what D&D is about to me. I don't have fun when my players don't have fun. Good vibes only. Yeah, and I I know Dungeon Masters who have been guilty of that, and probably there are many more that I don't know. And that's, in the Dungeon Master's case, a bad case of metagaming. Your players made a plan, 
And if it's a good plan, let it work. You know, it's your story is not going to suffer from your heroes being heroic or your clever party members being clever. It is going to thrive on that. And you know what? The next villain maybe hears about this particular scenario and prepares a little better. So, does that about wrap up your thoughts on Dungeon Master metagaming? I mean, there's more, but there's so much to talk about from the player's side of things that that's probably how our time is better spent. Fair enough. All right, first things first. Let's kind of define our terms. I am probably not going to be able to help myself, but use terms like good or bad to define metagaming. They're effective adjectives. You shouldn't feel bad about that. Right, and it's simple, and that's how I originally had my notes laid out, and so I'm probably not going to be able to help myself but use those terms. But they're very subjective. What is good at one table might be bad at another. People are going to have very different perceptions of those things. So how I will be using those terms in this episode is to refer to instances of metagaming that are either helpful and serve to elevate the experiences of your fellow players, or instances of metagaming which are detrimental and are actively damaging the experience of either the players or the dungeon master. And of those, I'd kind of like to tackle the helpful, good instances first. While metagaming can certainly be abused, it can actually also facilitate a very efficient, cooperative, and complementary playstyle around your table. Of the ways that I came up with in preparation for this episode, I actually found more ways to positively metagame than to negatively do so. Playing any type of game requires a level of understanding that you are playing a game. Right? We all talk about role-playing as being virtuous and anything that is not role-playing as being the opposite. But fact of the matter is, this game is best played when you and the other people you are cooperating with to tell this story understand that you are playing a game and that there are certain expectations and behaviors that you need to meet to be able to get the most out of it. In fact, a lot of that was covered in one of our previous episodes. Right. There is an understanding that you are playing a game and that this game has rules, and a proper understanding of these rules will enable you to play the game and enable you to play the game better. But that understanding is inherently unimmersive. So we talked about in our 10 unspoken rules of D&D certain things that you might want to do to help out the party and to make sure that everybody is having a good time. For example, one of those things is... If your buddy is making death saving throws, they really don't want to roll up a new character, most likely. So you should probably try and help them out before their character dies, which can happen unexpectedly quickly in some circumstances. And that should be a priority for you. Even if, in character, the character you are playing may could care less about whether or not that character lives or dies. If you guys are on the outs at the moment, me, Rob, as the player of the character knows that his brother, Steve, who is playing another character who is dying, would really like to keep playing that character. And I'm enjoying the two characters not enjoying getting along or not enjoying adventuring together. And so maybe you talk yourself into saying, oh, my character is going to go over there and save Steve's character because he knows it'll eat him alive that he owes him his life now. And I'm going to rub it in every minute of every day going forward. 
and I find a reason for my character to go over there and help Steve's character out. Maybe there wasn't a reason in character, but I invented one because out of character, Rob the player knows I need to save Steve's character. So this is a category of positive metagaming that I consider metagaming that makes sense as real-life friends playing a game together. There are some things that you will do, whether or not you can justify them in the fiction, because you as a person can justify them for the person sitting next to you. And this player mentality, as opposed to, of course, a character mentality, encourages behavior that ensures that everyone who came to play the game tonight is going to have a good time, both tonight and in the future. Things like Rob said, making sure that your buddy doesn't have to roll up a new character before next week's session. That's a very big and obvious way to make sure that your friend is having a good time and able to continue exploring the story of the character that they created. But it can also be very simple, basic things, just like sharing the spotlight amongst your fellow players, making sure that everyone has a chance to talk, prioritizing party cohesion, making sure that all your characters get along, even if they have very different motivations or goals, making sure the party stays together. Like we were talking about in our 10 Unspoken Rules, splitting the party means everyone plays less. And while that might be the correct narrative decision in order to accomplish your goals, it might not be the right table decision. And just considering that is inherently a form of metagaming. That's right. And while I'm still a fan of splitting the party in certain situations, knowing when it is and isn't appropriate and when it is and isn't detrimental to the fun of the other people around the table is a consideration, right? Yeah. You can also just metagame, like you said, just to keep the party together, right? There's very little reason in character that the prince of the realm and the son of a shepherd would adventure together, but that might be your adventuring party. And you need to find a reason for these two to get along, to hit it off, and to go into the dungeon hand in hand and arm in arm. Because that's what the adventure demands. And if you guys can't do that, then someone's missing out on the adventure. Yeah, so let's consider the prince and the farmhand. They might not have a great reason to cooperate with one another. And in fact, that prince may, in character be kind of motivated to really condescend towards that farmhand or to just boss them around all the time. But that may not add to the fun of the son of the shepherd's player. You know, it's a kind of a catch-22 when you're caught in between the D&D sin of spoiling someone else's fun and the D&D sin of betraying what your character would do. But spoiling your friend's fun by saying, it's what my character would do, is a cardinal D&D sin. So when you're caught in between actually doing what your character would do and making sure your friends have a good time, prioritize the one that protects the experience of your fellow players. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point I hadn't thought of before. Creating a character that is capable of getting along with people at the start of the adventure <laughs> is kind of metagaming if you think about it, but it's necessary. Right. Right? Like... If you are just going to play a dick, you're not going to do it at my table. So metagame just a little bit and make someone who's not a dick. Right. Any consideration, really, of party cohesion or party composition even is a form of metagaming. You know, we're not just all making the sort of character that we want to play and putting them in a party together and just seeing what happens if we all behave in character. 
if we did that with absolutely no thought of coordination or cooperation, most adventuring parties would just never form. Hmm. But if you stop and think about it, it kind of makes sense that an adventuring party would be composed of people who have complementary personalities or complementary skill sets, complementary class abilities. And I don't mean that in the way that, you know, they go together. I mean that they are different and that they are different in ways that fill in the gaps left by another player's personality, class, skill set, etc., it's not the most immersion-breaking thing in the world to say, hey, this party is starting off with a barbarian and a paladin. We could probably do with someone who has a ranged option. Right. You want to be complementary to the rest of the party. You don't want to have everybody in the party proficient in animal handling. There's a lot of other skills out there. You want to make sure that you are going to be providing something unique. right? You want to be, as I talk about in every... Almost every episode of this podcast since the feats, I want to be the guy. Almost every episode. I think you've talked about this sentiment more than I talked about Lord of the Rings in the first couple episodes. That's a tough challenge. But yeah, I want to be the guy. I want to be a specialist. I want to have something unique to bring to the party. Well, that's a good feeling. Maybe it's raging. Maybe it's turning undead. Maybe it's just that I'm the only guy in the party that knows how to frickin' intimidate a son of a gun. Whatever it is, you want to complement the skills of the other people. And even so, you want your own skills to make sense. If I'm going to be playing in a campaign that will feature, somehow, no beasts, I don't want to take animal handling. Oh, yes. On that point, I haven't exactly worked my way through every class in the handbook yet, but I have played a couple of rangers, and the very first thing that I do when I contemplate playing a ranger is I talk to the DM about where this campaign is going to be taking place. The ranger suffers from a unique circumstance that some of their class abilities only work in a certain geographic location within the fiction, in a certain terrain, in a certain landscape, against a certain enemy even. And let's make it clear. No other class suffers from this problem, except for maybe the cleric's maybe clerics. channel divinity, maybe the paladin's smite doing a little extra damage against fiends or undead, but they have other options to use those channel divinities for, and the smite still does damage even without it. But if you're not in the right place at the right time as the ranger, your stuff just doesn't work. Right, nowhere else is it this impactful. And playing a ranger whose favorite terrain is the mountains and whose favored enemy is dragons, and a high-seas, swashbuckling pirate adventure is just going to leave that player wishing they had played a different class. That conversation is literally going to the DM and asking them about what is in store for the campaign. If this were a module or something that was being run, you would basically be asking for spoilers. But Without those spoilers, you run a risk of just having a really bad time as a class which is kind of monotone even with that ability. <laughs> Certainly, at least, not having as good a time as you could have had. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that rangers aren't effective. Gloomstalker rangers are just powerhouses at being able to pump some damage downfield, but you're basically taking away what made them cool outside of just raw damage numbers. Now, we talked to Skosh before recording. 
skosh. A skosh. A smidge. Before recording about another type of metagaming that some may see as metagaming, but I definitely don't because I see so many ways that this makes sense in character. But during the course of a combat, you learn certain things about the enemies you are facing. You earn what their initiative number is. You learn what their armor class is, or what their attack bonus is, how they fight, their behaviors, and lots of information that before that combat started, you certainly didn't know, and certainly didn't have quantified. And that could be seen as metagaming if you use that information to your advantage, is what you were telling me. Right. This, I don't think, is very egregious, and I don't think it's particularly problematic, but Remembering the results of your roles, and especially if you listen to the results of other players' roles, to determine to determine statistic values about the enemies, like their AC or how many hit points they have, would, in my opinion, be a kind of metagaming. And at first blush, I kind of thought it would be a cheeky little thing to do to be paying close attention on the barbarian player's turn, when he was attacking the enemy to kind of figure out what its AC might be. And if I realized that it's a number that my character is going to struggle to achieve, maybe I start casting some buff spells with my turn or targeting some saving throws. Maybe I somehow get clued in as to the math of the saving throw that it made against the wizard's fireball. Maybe the DM overshared or something. And I realized that it has particularly weak dexterity saving throws. And I decide that that's going to be what I use to target these creatures in the future. And none of this information was gleaned by my character during my turn. I thought that might be problematic, but after you and I talked about it, maybe not so much. Maybe my character is familiar with the proficiencies of the barbarian. And I know how easy or hard it is for him to wail on something. And maybe I just see him go to town on that ghost with his axe and realize that that ghost doesn't look quite as hurt as it should, maybe it's not the least immersive thing in the world for my character to realize it's probably resistant to slashing damage. Right. I think we can credit our characters, not our players, with being able to take in a lot of information around them in any given moment in the fiction of the game. If a very martially capable character goes up and succeeds in doing a martial thing, like attacking someone with a big weapon, and it seems effective, I think that we can take from that, oh, well, this character takes normal damage from slashing weapons and has a relatively low armor class, which I think would be reasonably ascertained just by looking at them and seeing, hey, that guy's not wearing a lot of armor. That thing's skin looks fleshy. As opposed to you're going up against someone in plate armor who's wearing a shield or something with a chitinous exterior and say, oh, I bet you that thing's hard to hit. That immense creature is moving kind of slowly. I bet you its dexterity is kind of low. Maybe that's what I target. Mm -hmm. Or maybe that thing has drool coming out from the corner of its mouth. I bet you it has a low intelligence or wisdom. Maybe I'll cast Vicious Mockery or Eye Bite. Something like that. I think it is fair to say our characters are aware of how they can best fight in a life-or-death situation against something who is constantly giving them, unintentionally, information about itself. And I did see this mentioned as an example of metagaming online, but 
the more that we talk about it and the more that I think about it on my own, I think maybe these people, myself included, were just not giving the characters within the fiction enough credit. Right. These are professional adventurers. Their jobs, livelihoods, and actual lives depend on them paying attention when they're in these combat scenarios and allowing them to learn as they go, or perhaps I should say not allowing them to learn as they go and decrying that as a metagaming sin is petty at best. Maybe that's the real immersion-breaking assumption, is that your characters aren't learning and growing and capable of ascertaining some of this information on their own. I think that's that's actually pretty fair. I, I think it is unimmersive to think that my professional adventurer can't absorb new information when they fight something. Plus, added bonus, listening in on other players' turns and kind of ascertaining some of that table-level math stuff is going to make combats a lot more efficient. In fact, there are a lot of pretty harmless ways that you can use what some people would consider metagaming by this definition to make things a little bit more efficient at your table. In fact, several of those unspoken rules were strictly metagaming strictly to make your game more efficient. Things like prioritizing healing, focusing your firepower, always being ready to fight. Finally, it is possible, although a little bit tricky and difficult of a line to walk, to say that you as an experienced player can use your knowledge of the game and of the class that a less experienced player might be playing to help them understand the situation at hand and what their character can do about it. I really want to pump the brakes on that because that opens us up to a very bad kind of metagaming if handled incorrectly that we will talk about more in a moment. Assisting other players in playing the game is a virtue, specifically if you were asked for help. Running someone else's character is one of the more annoying things you can do at the table. So be careful not to cross that line. Yeah, and I'm going to talk more about that in a minute when we get to bad kinds of metagaming, so I don't want to dive in it too much. But I have been on the receiving end, unsolicited, of some reminders of what my character is capable of, or magic items that I had in my possession that I had just frankly forgotten about, and was able to pull off some pretty clutch moves So I don't want to just entirely discount the fact that that can be appreciated before we move on. Sure. Maybe your paladin in the party is smiting a fiend, and you notice that the player picks up two d8s. The dungeon master doesn't say anything, but you know they ought to get a third d8. Mm -hmm. Yeah, things like that. You're not telling them that they should be smiting the fiend, or that... They're bad for not choosing to do so, but helping them achieve their maximum potential based on what they've already decided to do. I love that. No problem with that. Sure. And case in point, yesterday, actually, I was playing a game on Misty Mountain Streaming where one of my fellow players used the healer feat to supplement their hit point pool, to heal their character somewhat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I also have taken the healer feat, and I was able to remind them that they actually got a numerical bonus after their roll equal to their character's level, which is an extra five hit points that Dr. Iris would not have had otherwise. 
I wasn't trying to control or Jaeger Dr. Iris, but I was able to remind them of a mechanical thing that exists that that applied in that situation for the action they were already planning to take. It's funny that you mention Jaegering and controlling other players' characters when you were actually possessed at the time. <laughs> it was a great episode. Best session of D&D that I've ever played. You should go and find that. Check that out <laughs> on Twitch or YouTube if you're not already following or subscribed. What are you doing with your life? But before we get into all the different negative ways that you can metagame at your table, we do need to talk about the DM's best friend. Guys, have you heard the good news about metagaming? Metagaming is what makes your campaign go round. Metagaming is what keeps your campaign alive. Metagaming is the best thing that your players can do sometimes. You create a tavern. You fill it with innocuous NPCs and make a point of mentioning that there is a mysterious, brooding, cloaked and hooded figure in the corner, and they hold the plot hook to the rest of the adventure. And you need your players' characters to go over and talk to them. And you know what? Your players' characters probably have no reason to interact with this individual, but they know out of character, around the table, the players know that you pointed them out for a reason and that they should probably go and interact with this individual. Them doing that, taking that action, is 100% metagaming, but they're doing it to perpetuate your game. Same as with the Son of the Shepherd and the Prince, we are taking steps to continue the adventure and play the game together, even though... We don't always have an in-character reason to do it. Or maybe we have to invent an in-character reason to do it. But we're doing it so that we can play Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Did you? Right. Just stop and think about this son of the shepherd, this farmhand that walks into the tavern, is spending his pittance on an ale. Do you really think the first thing that he's going to do is look over in the corner and say, Hey, that looks like the most dangerous guy here. Let's go strike up a conversation with him and see if there's anything that I can do for him. <laughs> exactly. I mean, metagaming is why your characters leave their homes to go adventuring, right? We, we invent reasons for them to do that because we want to play the game. Metagaming is why you open the chest even though it might be trapped. Metagaming is why you choose to wield the cursed sword with all the powers that it confers, even if you might be sacrificing your soul or uh, doing things to your party uh, unintentionally by doing so. It's why the cast of Critical Role put up with Percy's ass during the Briarwood arc. It's why, <laughs> it's why Sam threw the, uh, what, what was the, the six gun called that he had? Pepperbox. Yes, thank you. It's why Scanlan threw the pepper box into the acid. Because, out of character, Sam knew, we can't trust that thing. Matt's up to some shit. We need to get rid of this item. If you don't get that reference, watch The Legends of Vox Machina on Amazon Prime. But metagaming can be such a good thing. It has a negative stigma. It deserves that negative stigma for the negative aspects of metagaming. You know, it's a funny thing that you mentioned that you actively create a reason for your character to go out and adventure during the character creation process. Already done that at least once. Why does it stop once the game actually begins? It shouldn't. It shouldn't, yes. And, and, and for some people, it probably never does. It, the people who are aware of this fact 
But for the rest of you who aren't, just keep doing that thing. The Dungeon Master has prepared content, either from reading a module or by homebrewing it themselves, that should entertain you. And it's the best bro move that you can do for yourself and your fellow players to allow yourselves to pursue that in hopes of being entertained. Go go do the thing. Talk to the guy. Heal your party. Investigate the lead. Bite the plot hook. Follow the carrot on the stick. Work together. Cooperate. Even if you get to be unhappy and snarky about doing it, do it. Your dungeon master will thank you. You will be happier. Everyone at the table will have a better time. Just metagame in a positive, constructive way. A a little bit. Do it. Just do it! (laughs) But there is a line. There's a line where metagaming stops being for the benefit of the game, for the benefit of the party, for the benefit of the dungeon master, and the fun of all concerned. And it becomes kind of tantamount to cheating. I don't know that there's a better way to put it. Cheating. Hey guys, Rob here. Just jumping in to say that this discussion kind of went a little off course for us. So we decided to split it into a couple of episodes just for the sake of clarity and to get you guys an episode a little sooner than maybe we otherwise would. So we're kind of interrupting ourselves here and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the continuation of our discussion on metagaming uh, for your edification and enjoyment. Thanks for your patience. See you soon. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic twinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. All right. First things off. First things off. All right. First things first. Let's kind of define our terms. Just a bit. So... Sorry. So, so before they turn Lots this of off, spit in my. <laughs> so, in to figure out exact, how do I make this stop? It's not going to pick up on your audio. Your audio is going through Audacity. It not will stop unless you're using listening through your speakers. It's coming through my. Sp- th- these beeps are coming from my speakers. We just mute your speakers. You've got headphones on. Why okay, do you have I'll speakers do- on? Uh, I was, what was I doing? I was listening to that uh, Godfather thing. I don't understand okay. why you would have sound coming out of two places at once. So I can listen to two things at once. I don't understand um, you at a base level. Okay, let me re- <laughs> let me recapture what I was 